Hello and welcome to Transit Matters, episode 9. Uh, it is February 8th, 2015. Uh, I'm good at numbers and things. Uh, I'm Jeremy Mendelson. I am a transit planner and advocate uh, working for sustainable transportation and things. Um, I'm Mark Ibunia, and I'm the curator of the blog and social media feeds. By day, I'm a IT systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out over meeting celebrities in transportation and getting knee-deep in advocacy. I'm Josh Fairchild. Uh, by day, I work in uh, commercial real estate. By night, when I'm not attending three-hour you know, community meetings, I am uh, learning about uh, transit. I'm an enthusiast for that, and also... Uh, I really get into the public policy around transit, so the politics and policy. And I need a longer introduction, apparently. So uh, <laughs> uh, today we're going to talk about uh, some recent coverage. Uh, it's been a terrible week in public transit in Boston, and uh, it's really... Well, and uh, in New York, also, Metro North, yeah. Yes, that's correct. Um, a number of things happened, uh, both uh, snow and not snow-related. Um, and so, basically, we got a bunch of snow, and our, our transit system kind of fell apart. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, is that a good way of putting it? Yeah. So uh, I mean, we had it was a worst case scenario. Yeah. yeah. I mean, first we had the train that uh, kind of caught on fire in Quincy Center. Yeah. So well, let's explain what what happened. Why did the train catch on fire? Mark might know. Do we have? I don't think we got a lot of details, but I think I'm going to take the few moments there to just kind of say how how poorly the the T handled that 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 PR situation. I think that's a clear. I've had a few people, including on Reddit, um, reply how this should have been a clear-cut situation where the T should have said, look, this is this is what happens when you underfund transit, rather than, you know, Pesatoro, Joe Pesatoro, the, uh, the talking head of the MBTA, basically saying, the, T, the passengers shouldn't have kicked down the windows, they should they have... They weren't really in danger. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, which is actually a really horrible way to to address that situation. I think he's been, maybe been in that position a little too long, to say the least. But um, <laughs> well, I don't know. He just says, I think he just says what he's told. So yeah, he's the PR rep. You know, that's but that's clearly I think he was he was taking the official line of, of yeah. the agency at that point, which was they were trying to be reassuring by saying the passengers were not in any real danger. There's nothing for later passengers to be concerned about. There was no, and, yes. but but I think they went a step further in saying there was no need to kick out the window, and yes. this is where Governor Baker gets involved and says, "Hey, I think anybody in that situation, when the car is filling with smoke, is going to get pretty scared." Yeah. And I and probably would have done the same thing. Which I agreed with Governor Baker in that situation of saying you can't belittle like the fears of people who are riding your your vehicles, especially because um, from personal accounts and and police and police reports. Uh, the driver, the power was out on the train. There was no way for the tr- for the driver to deliver any sort of message to the passengers in that car. Um, from one per- from one person on Reddit who actually was on the scene and in the car that was uh, that was filling up with smoke, um, people also didn't seem to be aware of how to exit from the side end from the from the. Uh, the ends of the car, uh, where the emergency brakes are, the emergency brake lever that unlocks the end, end doors so that you can evacuate to other cars on the train. Um, apparently, one woman was having pro- trouble with that. Uh, and meanwhile, the driver, who's running from the front of the train, runs to the back of the train and apparently completely passes the car that's full of people where the doors didn't open. 
and um, nobody, he kind of disappeared to the end of the train and nobody noticed where he went. And everybody's so, thinking, holy shit, the thing's on fire, get the hell out of here. Exactly, was... right. So, um, that, uh, it's, it follows along with the, what happened in Washington, D.C., which was... Mm. Uh, this has been weird. It's, we've had several issues yeah. in the last month of smoke filling in cars. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I think... Is it well, three? The, there was, there was... The one in, in Wamada in D.C., right? Yeah. There was this one. Was there one in New York where there was a car that filled with smoke? Uh, no, that was related to a car getting hit. So a car was hit um, at a grade-level crossing. The third rail was dislodged and then shot into the train, actually killed five people, and then also filled with smoke. Actually, I don't know if the third rail was what killed them or if it was the, f- the ensuing fire that, that killed them, but there was, uh, yes, that was probably the smoking condition that you're thinking of. When the train is actually on fire because of the third rail. I mean, I'm going to take this opportunity to say two things. First of all, there is there is the maintenance issue, as, as you were mentioning yeah. a minute ago. That you know, I mean, we should be saying like, look, you know, this is these things. This is the 21st century here. Like, we know how to run subway. Even in the 20th century, we knew how to run subways that don't fill with smoke. That you know, we don't have cars that are 45 years old. Um, you know that that you know we're completely incapable. No system of uh, passengers like there's no emer- with no emergency door opening from the outside or anything. Because we have these, you know, these super old cars that haven't been built with that. And the other thing that's related to that is that we, and I've been saying this, you know, you know, I've been saying this for a while, is that we don't do any emergency planning. And we need planning for situations like this so that you have something to communicate to passengers that, you know, in an emergency, you know, this is what you do. And also from a transit agency perspective, every time the red line breaks down, it's like, you know, and you need to get shuttle buses. Yeah, we don't want the red line to break down, but hey, you know, the red line's going to break down sometimes. We're going to have shuttle buses. We're going to have snow. We're going to have all these other things that a are going on. A contingency plan. Yeah, and like, so the t- people at the T know that, okay, this is this is what happened. Let me pull out this book. And this is, you know, I send this person to this place and I do this, you know, this person goes goes and drives from here to here. and All know, drivers just, pull out page yeah. page B. And, you <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, well, that's, right. what, that's what they do with Everyone knows FEMA. what to do if they see a backpack by itself, but nobody knows what to do when something like this happens. Well, I mean, uh, the the federal, uh, what is it, the, the federal agency for emergency preparedness, I can't remember the, uh, the initial. Oh, well. Is, was that federal, it? federal Emergency Management Agency. Agency, yes. Well, FEMA, but there's another there's another agency out there that also does emergency preparedness. Well, FEMA's all like clean up after the emergency. Yes, that's right. Do so that's. Way. That's after the fact, whereas there's okay. one that does, there's an agency that does um, emergency preparedness. Okay. And so they do drills, and when they do drills, it's pretty much like, go to page blah of, you know, page se- page five of section A and follow this plan. And uh, that's that's really what needs to, what needs to happen here is um, um, a... A, an automated system that that goes if, even if it's not binders, some sort of computerized system that can dispatch bus drivers and say do this, or um, an, an automated uh, a button that a driver can press at a station and be able to say, or or even uh, if the driver is experiencing an issue, call, being able to radio into into the uh, into the operations control center and the operations control center being able to remotely make an announcement in the station saying, ladies and gentlemen, please go right. to to the emergency exits or do X, Y, and Z. Because yeah. um, on the one hand, yeah, we do want we we do want passengers to be able to evacuate as necessary. Uh, but the on the on the other side, um, you also don't want people to to immediately be able to go to the side door, especially on a red line train, and say, okay, this is my way out. Um, 
because actually if you if 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 any of you are listening to the podcast yeah. and happen to be on a train right now look at the end car and look at the emergency signage and and try to read it from the middle of the car or wherever you're standing and try to yeah. figure out what their what what the procedure is because i i've actually this has been one of my things that i've been uh, I've gone back and forth trying to draft a, a redesign of this for the past five years because when I first came to Boston, that was one thing that struck that that just kind of struck me from all of the New York City signage that's really simplified and 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 uh, in in many cases just completely iconic iconographic to the point where you can look in the car in the end, in the in most cars and see emergency signage that says what to do in the in the event of police action or this that and the other thing which and unfortunately it, usually says listen to instructions from crew member but but the first thing that they all that. say <laughs> the first thing they all say is do not pull the emergency brake oh yeah unless you know uh i mean like well, it says it pretty, pretty uh, matter-of-factly. It's like, don't right. do that. Well, don't pull the Mark, I think it's a really good point, Mark, because we all know exactly where the exits are on planes and how, yeah. we, how we, were to, we would operate if anything happened on a plane. And so that's due to, you know, the Federal FAA, regulation. The, the FAA <laughs> has been really effective at making sure. Yeah. But, you know, what about the FRA? What about the FTSB? Like, why, why don't we have the same type of um, communication happening on every transit system in America to where mm-hmm. we can go between transit systems even in the same way that we can go from one airline to another and know exactly what the procedures yeah. are. I think um, NTSB, uh, in their investigation of the, the WMATA incident, um, where the train was... If you, if you, look, at the, if you look at the timeline, um, the smoking condition and the train being arrested in the tunnel uh, to the time that there, there was actually a, an announcement about... Um, wanting to go back into the station and, and the driver trying to do this, that, and the other thing, um, and telling dr- people not to pull the emergency brake because then he wouldn't be able to to move the train. Um, it, it, I think it's a 30, 30 to 45 minute time span before anything actually gets done or until passengers yeah. are informed about what, what happens. So, um, I mean, like in this condition... Um, I mean, we could, we could debate. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, we, we could debate this, you know, ad nauseum, but I think at the end of the day, I think the, what, what needs to be done is... Contingency is planning. People need to, yes, contingency planning. People need to sit down in a room and say, okay, you know, run through all the scenarios and say, well, you know, what is this? And, yeah. you know, where could we where could we put, you know, if we had to respond to something at this station, right. how do we do that? And I think that could be... Because, uh, and the other thing that this goes to also is is um, the over-promising. You know, yeah. we talk about... You know, the T is, we talk about the response to this incident in Quincy, right? Yeah. When the T immediately says, no, everything's under control, we got it, you know, we got And it's like, they're sort of used to going to, you know, getting getting all kinds of, like, shit from politicians and others, you know. And, and being going on the defensive. And being defensive, saying, okay, you know, we know what we're doing, we're sorry, we'll do better, you know, that sort of stuff. And I think that's sort of starting to change this week. We saw a lot of press right. uh, about team maintenance, and especially um, the general manager, Beverly Scott, was was in the, in the news a couple right. of times. Saying, you know, look, this is what we got. We're doing the best we can, and uh, you know, if you want us to do better, then uh, you know, you need to give us some money or some yes. help. Yes, or... that outlining the team needs. And yeah. I, I have the quote from uh, Joe uh, Pasaturo here. He said, <laughs> "The incident was not an emergency situation. There was no fire and no injuries. The smoke was not inside the car." He said, "And bystanders and passengers did not need to break windows because an MBTA inspector was about to open the doors manually." There was no reason for this to happen. It is unclear why some acted in such a manner. 
that's the language that Governor Baker uh, later uh, scolded the MBTA for oh, uh, yeah. because it seemed uncaring. I it mean, is. there's there's a fine line between assuring everyone that the system's okay and that they're okay to get on the next car and pulling a Joe Biden and saying, well, I would never ride, you know, the trains because of whatever the reasons. If anyone remembers, you know, Joe Biden having that mistake several years ago. But um, I don't know that fine line. I guess what I also wanted to bring up was uh, I was I was looking while we were talking uh, for exactly what had happened. And it, and it seems what happened is there was a problem with the propulsion system on that car where the propulsion system failed so that it was still the, – the motor was still spinning even though the wheels weren't moving, and because of that, the doors wouldn't open because they they won't open if the if the motor is spinning, and um, because of the friction created by the motor spinning and the wheels not, that's what caused the smoke mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, I'm I'm gonna just to kind of end it <laughs> to end cap that discussion. Um, the the funny thing is is that on the red line, I believe it's under Broadway or under uh, either under Broadway Station or under Andrew Station. There is an emergency preparedness. There is an emergency training center oh, that yeah, the MBTA, MBTA has, and so and actually one of the features of of this of this uh, simulation uh, training area is smoking conditions. So uh, they have a smoke they have a smoke machine um, that they can run through with with um, uh, with passenger or like fake passengers or or uh, crew to train them on what do you do in a smoking condition how do you evacuate passengers admittedly they ha- the equipment that's in there is the old uh the old uh, one of the old uh, a pair of one of the old blue line cars um but to say the least there there is there is equipment I, there is for a fact a scenario that they could run in that in that um that facility i don't know what their requirements are on employees doing emergency preparedness training through that uh, through that system, but to say the least, uh, the fact that no one, the fact that no one has like a remote, remote access like on the platform to the PA system in the station is just if that probably that was probably the killer here in the situation. Yep. So well, thankfully yeah. there was nobody who died, but you know that. And <laughs> we don't. I mean, we we there have been other incidents too in in recent years, and you know, I'm not going to recount all of them, but I think what happens. With things like this, is people start to people lose confidence. Yeah, I mean, how many times do you hear about something like this, or if you've been involved in something like this, you say, "I'm never going to ride that thing again." People lose confidence in in that and other public services, mm-hmm. and it's kind of the opposite of where we need to be yeah. going with this. Even though transit is by infa- by far the uh, discounting airplanes, assuming you're not flying in an airplane in a small craft, which actually has, I believe, a higher accident rate than jumbo jets. Uh, assuming that you're not flying to work every single morning, transit is the safest option as compared to every other option that you have. Well, I mean, maybe even walking might not like well, <laughs> safest vehicle. Right, depends yeah. on where you're walking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. safest safest yeah. vehicle right. related mode of transportation. So that was just one problem that we had this week. Yep. Um, I my commutes weren't quite as bad as what a lot of people I felt like the orange line uh, although I guess yeah the orange line what were they saying uh, as many as 50% of orange and red cars were out of service yes. this week yes uh, there's the, specific numbers out there but yeah it was about 50% of the entire fleet yeah and I, I didn't I, I, I met with delays but I didn't meet with um, being on the train when it was delayed I just had to wait at the platform 
the commuter rail trains were all um, running. It seemed like at least twenty minutes late. Uh, one of the things that, and I was I was uh, sending some of these alerts uh, to you, Mark, that I got frustrated with was with the commuter rail. Um, I was getting the alerts an an hour. Like they would send me an alert saying, "Oh, this train, so and so train, is delayed forty five minutes," and that's like sixty five minutes after it should have been there. So <laughs> I, I start to wonder why they're sending me this message. You know, right. Way after the effect, I, I was at South Station waiting for a train that was delayed 30 minutes, um, you know, on a day that I, you know, was really bad. So I thought, okay, whatever, 20 minutes isn't that bad. Well, then they canceled the next train. So I, I, I noticed this. They canceled the next train, the 710 train. I get home and I get an email saying the 710 train's been canceled. Well, so that was <laughs> an hour after the fact. They're letting people know that the train got canceled. Well, I, what I'm curious to know, especially if we have any listeners here in, uh, listening from New York or um, or who travel frequently from New York on the Long Island Railroad or Metro North or New Jersey Transit, um, I know for a fact that they have regular announcements at the platform about the on-time or the, the timeliness of the next service. Um, and whether or not that's tied into an what's what type of automated system that's tied into, and whether or not people on Long Island actually get uh, um, like if there are feeds that the Long Island Railroad offers, because from from my experience, having grown up on Long Island and using the Long Island Railroad uh, a lot, um, there was something very reassuring about being able to hear on the platform the the 508 train to Penn Station is operating on time. Uh, meaning on time is in five, five yeah, yeah. up to five minutes away yeah, from right. schedule, but um, having some sort of assur- assur- assurance on the platform from an automated system, and that's something maybe that uh, Keolis can, uh, with um, with their operating operating funds, could probably do. Because I know that there's a small there's a small team that that's separate from the MBTA communications team that operates. Uh, specifically within Keolis that manages this communication. Well, well, tell me this because I that that same evening that I was telling you about that that delay, I was sitting at my desk at work and I, you know, my wife called and said, "Well, how are you getting home?" And I said, "Okay." I went on the website and it said that all the commuter rails were delayed except for the Needham line was running on time. So I said, "All right, I'm, I'm taking the train home." So I run to South Station. So we're talking literally seven minutes later, and I get there and the board says it's delayed. So I'm not really sure if they're just the website wasn't updated, yeah. you know what was happening with that. And then the other the other frustrating thing is like it just says delayed. They don't say it's 20 minutes delayed. You have to be waiting to get the emails for that, which those 20 minute delay emails are getting to you 30 minutes after the delay happens. Right. Same things happening. I'm sitting on the platform at Forest Hills, and the 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 scrolling message board is not telling me there's a delay. It's telling me the train is arriving. That the train is approaching. I'm sorry, the train is approaching, and it's telling me this for you know 15 minutes. You said you're at Back Bay. Uh, this is at Forest Hills. This is at Forest you Hills. Know, so so it's telling me the train's approaching for 15 minutes. Usually it tells you the train's approaching after it's left for Allendale Village before it gets to Forest Hills. Uh, so it's somewhere in there, and so you're knowing okay, it's going to be you know a minute or two. So at that point, I say okay, screw this. I'm going to go to the Orange Line instead. And the orange line says it's boarding, so I get on the orange line, and then we sit there 15 minutes before it leaves. Mm-hmm. So there's, in none of those places was the communication, you know, what people would ex- be expecting. Right, so like on the orange line where they'd say, we are being held, our departure is being held by operations control, ladies and gentlemen, please stand by, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, Which they weren't saying that. that right, time. exactly. I, I went. I did. I had the same experience uh, this week, where I ended up just. I took the, the 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 next train that arrived at Green Street, and I just took it to Forest Hills because that was the next train. So um, then I uh, crossed the platform, and then I waited for about twenty minutes before the the train actually departed Forest Hills. So th- I mean, I can understand. I can understand that there needs to be spacing, or that they're trying to be, they're trying to manage the equipment or the the service, but. They, the MBTA and the MBCR need to co- co- uh, communicate with us, and one of my one of my biggest concerns is um, it goes back to protocol. Do are these people trained in protocol about what to say? And I do understand. Um, I mean, I'm trying to understand and trying to be sympathetic to the co- the Keolis team, but is this also a case of people being overpromised to different departments from the communications? realm saying, okay, well, you manage the Twitter account, but we also need you to coordinate through this, that, and the other thing. So that was that was something um, when I was doing my interview process for the informa- MBTA information officer, um, one of the things was, was um, working out that protocol, and then how would, how would you respond, and in what media you need to coordinate this message and that message and how do you reword this, that, and the other thing based on the message that's coming in from the Operation Control Center. And from what I could see, there was a lot of kind of dumbing down and then it seemed like there was a disjointedness in terms of how they send out communications rather than in a single portal. Surely surely somebody out there has paid significant sums of money to solve this problem and that we just don't subscribe to that. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's that's. You think, you think just because of money? I think it might be money. Might might also be that the fact that the management doesn't know that these technologies exist. They're very narrow in their focus, and they're very focused on operating the the day to day. And kind of like how um, we talk sometimes about things that are going on in London, in Minnesota, wherever. Yeah. We know about these things because we also have the luxury of not having to work inside of the agency on a day-to-day basis. So I wonder if that's just because they're just so focused on they can't seem past their nose. That is a good point. And I'm, you know, rethinking about, you know, when I was there and it's, um, you know, yeah, they were very focused. Well, first of all, when I first started at the MBTA and just going back about 2006, yeah. the first time, um, there were about 6,500 employees. And, you know, now it's, it's well under 6,000, which is, it means it's been cut by 10%. And so that's part of it. Everybody's trying to do more. You know, this the corporate. What is it, the corporate uh, thing? Do do more with less. Yes, right. Do more with less. Um, so, so they're you know everybody's trying to do that, and um, people are doing you know multiple things, and everybody's yeah. so busy putting out fires that they don't you know they don't really have a chance to do you know planning or whatever. And I think that has some a lot to do with the fact that there never really was communication. You know, we never really had. Nobody ever said to me, like, I would be asking about something, and nobody ever said, oh, you know, why don't you call so-and-so in Chicago or, you know, in yeah. London or whatever. There's... And we never seem to have that. Maybe some people do, but... Yeah. It's not, it's not built into the culture to look for solutions outside of Boston because Boston is so unique and so special that it needs to have its own way of doing things or the, maybe the way that Wamada's doing yeah. something or maybe the way that Bart's doing something isn't translatable because... 
you know, Bart's not the same type of system and they deal with different types of problems, as if there's no lessons to be learned. I mean, that isn't to say that, say, for example, uh, uh, Deputy Director of Capital, uh, Cap- the Capital Investment Program, um, uh, Victor Rivas, he, uh, we spoke, I've, I've spoken with him, and he said that he is, he has had the, I don't want to say luxury, but the, the opportunity to go travel abroad and then learn and uh, go on a tour with with other transit um, agency officials. Go on tours of different different agencies abroad. How do they do things differently? But then, you know, that's how does that percolate into the agency? Exactly. You know? So I mean, maybe it's great that it's great that the deputy director of capital capital investment has had the opportunity to do that. But has the director of operations or even the the, the deputy director of operations? had the chance to look at, and that was actually one of the things that they and asked. And if he leaves, who else benefited from right. the fact that he did that? And I mean, and to their to their credit, uh, I don't know if I'm starting to step into the territory of well, stuff that gonna, I'm... We're both never going to get hired by the Right. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, one of the things that the... So there's a deputy director of communications at the MBTA who's a little... who's a lot younger than than um, uh, than Mr. Pesatoro, and, uh, but he she's a little more closer to the ground in terms of uh, social media in terms of new new media communications at the T, but I'm I'm curious. Like, I haven't really seen a lot of changes in the last year or two since they were since she was in- instituted. Maybe it's kind of maybe it's still maybe they're still working on on authorizing new methods of communication. Well, but is the same person that's running the Twitter feed also... Um, there's a set of people. There's a, th- are those people the same people that are sending out the email messages, the same people who are posting on the website, the same people who are running the boards, yes. the scrolling boards? Well, uh, yes, the, the yes, exactly. So, so those things should all be running on this... They should be the same, right? Uh, theoretically, yes, at least within the MBTA, and then I believe also within Keolis. So, because uh, again, it sounds like they need to essentially get like the the transit version of uh, a Google Calendar. So you put something on your phone, you sync it with everything. It, then it then shows up on uh, you know when you syndication. Web. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. syndication. So so that's that. I do know there is a level of of automated syndication that happens. But um, so for example, updating updating the tickers in the stations. I'm pretty sure that's a system that they, that somebody needs to go in and pre do a. Um, canned message or something like that. I also really, really wish that they would just authorize somebody to get onto the microphone and say, as opposed to just letting the robots. Yeah. Oh speak my god! That Can you message. get rid of that damn thing? Uh, it's, it used to be so great when they had a person. That, the person was great at South Station. Okay. You would do the announcements. You know, the four hundred five train to Reedville is now boarding on track so, number no, two. Tell me, stop, you know, well they they still do that, but is it because oh, wow. anytime they make an announcement at South Station? The announcement is simultaneously being run across the board. Well, that's an automated... For, for, for hearing impaired yeah, people. Yeah. So does that mean they can't say anything that hasn't already been put onto the board? Is that the issue? They, they can't be as ad-lib with well, their messages? Well, that, that might be more Keolis management as opposed to MBTA, what I'm talking about in the stations where okay. they have the female robotic voice who okay. tries to mm-hmm. kind of go What you're talking about stuff. is, I think, ADA, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting at ADA requirements right. and that... That you know, some people aren't able to hear the announcements, which I, nobody can really hear the robot anyway. But right. if, let's say you know, not able to hear the announcements, and you need to be able to read. And there's the T is kind of obsessed, and I don't know if they're 
this, they have to be like this, but they're kind of obsessed with like every single thing that we say. You know, you have to scroll every single word. But the, the New York City does that too. Like lately, yeah. with the introduction of the tickers on the platforms, when they make an announcement, uh, when they have to make a manual announcement from the, their operations control center, for the most part, at least from what I've seen in my recent visits, those have been those have been coincident with announcements. But those have been canned announcements of that, you know, ladies and gentlemen, please be aware of the fast track pro- project that will sure. be taking down the one, right. you know, four, five, six, or whatever. Right, they have so. time to they have time to plan it out, and you know, right. Um, now this has all been, um, you know, messaging and delivering the message about trains being late, uh, buses, and all all these things. I was wondering, do you think that you know, as far as you know, my complaints earlier about not getting the messages and the messages being mixed up and too late. Do you think that this week they just sort of said, you know what, screw it. Like, we've, we've told everybody to expect severe delays. We're not going to worry about every single, yeah. you know, train. I think it's, I think it's a, I mean, you might have something to say about this, Jeremy, but I think, I think it's, we need to move away from this concept that there is a specific schedule that people are expecting these trains to arrive and we need to be more about, well, okay, how long has it been since this, tr- this, Stop was last serviced by a vehicle. Yeah, I mean they do a pretty decent job about that on the on the um, heavy rail, mm-hmm. rapid, you know, red, orange, or blue lines. Right. Um, but it, this is something that's that's gained a lot of attention at the T over the past ten years or so. That they they sort of recognized when they were measuring on time performance, which they know is bad and they don't really do anything about. Um, <laughs> at least especially on the bus side. But they when they started measuring on time performance and trying to get a little better about that, they were saying, okay, well, it doesn't, you know, if a bus runs every, or a train runs every half an hour then, you know, you want it to be within, like, five minutes of the schedule time. But it's a little different if it runs every five or ten minutes because what really matters, you know, you're not you're not looking at a schedule for the most part. You know, you're going out to get the number one bus or the red line. You're not really, like, checking the schedule and going mm-hmm. for the, you know, 632 train. But what really matters is how long did you have to wait for it and was it was it within an acceptable amount of time? So if it's supposed to run exactly. every ten minutes, then they say, is it within was it within was every train within fifteen minutes? And if right. it's not within fifteen minutes, the, you know one and a half times yeah. to ten minutes, then you know it gets flagged as late. Yes, right. If, I think... if, I, if I'm waiting more than I mean, the orange line during rush hour should be six minutes, but if I'm waiting more than I guess ten minutes, I'm going to get aggra- aggravated at that point. But you know, yeah, right. no, exactly. If I haven't been told that it's that there's some sort of delay and we're sitting there, yeah. um, whereas the commuter rail, since it runs less frequently, I kind of want to know if it's late because I'll make alternate arrangements. I'm not going to wait fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. you know, for the eight thirty train if I can just go do something else. Right, and I do. I do have to say I disagree with the the idea that, and, and this is maybe based on nothing because I know I'm not. I haven't been in the control center lately, but I don't think that they're just saying, oh, screw it, you know, whatever, just kind of giving up. Um, it may be that they sort of have to say that in some situations because they're just, they're overburdened. But I, I don't think, I, I know that there's people who are, that there are good people that are generally trying to do, do their best. And there's just, I think, so much going on. What happens in these situations is that if you're, this was, this was the case recently when the, uh, I think when they, um, when that Malaysian airline flight disappeared and people said there was no communication. And I remember there were, there were some people saying that, you know, what, the proper training of any kind of transit operation is that what you're focusing on first is the immediate operation and the safety. And so they gave the extreme example of, you know, if I have to, if I have to pull this lever and if I don't pull this lever right away, then the plane's going to sink. And then, but you know, I could alternatively, instead of pulling the lever, I could alternatively pick up the phone and, you know, push a button to call the control center. Well, then I'm going to, I'm going to pick the lever because, 
I need to keep the damn thing in the air. And that was sort of like the very crude idea of, of you know, how you're kind of prioritizing things. And so it sort of relates to when you're, when you're in a control center and you're trying to dispatch your trains and you deal with your emergencies, if it's the same person there who's also responsible for posting a thing on Twitter, well, they're not going to post a thing on Twitter until they right. have a situation under control, and that might be 45 minutes. Because the, the other thing, too, is um, those information officers who, whose job it is to do the updates, um, they just might not have somebody on shift at that point. They might be having difficulty getting into the office in the first place. Because um, the importance the importance of that information officer being in the operations control center to not only to not only do those updates but also be able to listen directly to somebody on the operations side saying this is what's happening it's it's very important though I want to give the MBTA credit this week um, occasionally there have been times occasionally where they've actually said our services suspended because of police action. Ladies and gentlemen, please be patient, because it's one thing to say that there are delays. It's another thing to say, you know, there is a lot of gravity with being with with having to say our trains are suspended. But it's also a level of 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 being polite to your passengers and being able to be, you know, that having that humility of being able to say mm-hmm. our trains have stopped and they're not going anywhere because they've literally hit someone or something like that. Please be patient, as opposed to. When people see that there are delays, they think the trains are still running, and that's um, yeah. that's a different. He's getting better about that, and I mean, you, know, you heard Beverly Scott, like I said this week, you know, yeah. saying just like, look, you know, we know you got your Super Bowl thing going on, but we just we just got no trains. We can't so do we're it. Not gonna, we're not going to try to promise something that we can't do, and we're going to do the best we can. Yeah, and you know, I think she really she did a really good job this week. Yep. I, I thought it was it was historic for her to say, um, you know, what we just can't handle the capacity. We're you should seek alternate transportation, you know? And she felt bad saying that, and she said, this is not what I would ever be saying, but she said, you can't rely on the T this week, which I, that, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but, yeah. and then she was doing pretty good each day of saying, we're going to have, you know, 50% of the cars are online today, 80% are online today, you know, now we're to 95% up and running, you know? So I, I really did appreciate that honest, you know, communication from the T. So, so this has been, we talked about the communication issues, um, I guess we should probably go through a little list of what exactly were the operational difficulties that we were facing. Mm-hmm. So we know that mm-hmm. a lot of the motors were failing um, on, on a lot of the heavy rail cars um, due to them being old and not dealing with, um, with, with the moisture from the snow. Um, we know that uh, the, the, power, the, the third rails were getting iced over, especially on the red line. Mm-hmm. We know that... Um, on the green line above ground, on the E line, the trolleys were having to turn around a Brigham Circle because they were getting stuck in ridiculous traffic because there was only one lane cleared on the street, and so that lane was the trolley lane. We know that buses, uh, streets were not cleared wide enough for buses to pass at the same time, or other cars, so buses were being severely delayed, having to wait um, in traffic conditions to allow people to pass yes. because people parked on the streets were infringing on the travel lanes. Yep. Um, are there other issues that we were dealing with this week? I want to say the buses were, the, were that was the most ridiculous one. I mean, yeah. Jeremy and I both experienced. Was it last Friday for you as well? Oh, I ride buses all the time. Okay. Yeah. So for me, last Friday, I you know I got out of work early and I was like, well, I'm going to go to Dudley Square. I want to see the new the new building. How that. Constructions progressed. I got there. It was great. Looks like uh, the Ferdinand Building. Yes, yep. the the building looks great. And then uh, I 
got to the platform for the uh, the berth for the 41 bus and saw that the 41 bus coming uh, westbound um, was stuck on Dudley Street for, I want to say, 30 minutes or so. Like, just mm-hmm. just my, maybe not even 10, 15 blocks away. Um, according to the driver, when he finally arrived, the traffic got really, really bad after the Upham's Corner uh, commuter rail stop where Dudley Street just turns into yeah. basically this... Uh, single lane slalom course of just you know trying to weave in between traffic uh, i think you said the 15 jeremy said the 15 yeah. 15 bus was in a similar condition basically uh i wouldn't be surprised if the 66 was having to deal with the same thing um i mean all these roads everywhere and i think yeah. the city you know and i think the city has really we need to really take the city to task for this of saying why you know why are these cars being allowed to park so far away and I know you're afraid, to, you know, some people may be afraid to, tell, to to go and say to people, oh, you know, you can't park your car here or whatever, because people say, where I park it, whatever. But, I mean, you know, you're, you're delaying the transit service, you're keeping, I saw, you know, ambulances stuck in traffic, yeah. fire engines stuck in traffic. Yeah. And, um, you know, that happens every day, but this was so much worse. Well, I think this is a really, a really interesting conversation because we all know that we can't replace the all the motors on our cars we can't replace the cars we can't i'm talking about the train cars we can't replace the power system there's a lot of things we can't replace overnight and everybody understands that but it seems like a pretty simple operational issue of having the streets cleared enough of snow or having not having cars parked there that the buses can get through it's a resource problem well, is, like it, is it a city versus a state agency and they're not cooperating on how to make this work is this a state agency is just Dealing well, with whatever, whatever the city gives them? Is that what the problem is? I mean, for the way I see it is that there's, there's always been that tension between different agencies. And everybody likes to say, oh, we're, I'm responsible. You know, you're, we're not responsible for this. It's your deal. You know, the T runs the buses. And I often say that if, if it was the city that ran the buses or the state that maintained the roads and, and ran the roads, then there would be a lot better coordination there. It may, maybe that's not the case. Um, but I think that there is there's certainly a sort of a it, – it's, compl- it's a very complex and, and massive operation if you were talking about, like, you know, we got so much snow, like, we need to get rid of it. We need to move it somewhere. And I, that's something that I would never suggest because we have just the amount of trucking that's involved, like, loading this. Loading well, they are doing trucks, that right and now. They are doing that, well, and I, yeah. I hate to see that. But, I mean, t- saying that, you know, cars can't park on, on certain these these emergency arteries, or which are, you know, maybe MBTA buses. Which they've been saying. So, right now, there's a parking ban that went into effect at 4 o'clock today. For It's currently snowing. For the snow that's supposed to be happening all day tomorrow, the whatever, 12 inches, whatever we're going to get... Um, I guess I wonder why don't we wait until okay, so we we've got plows going through while it's snowing and we get the lanes cleared, but they basically push the snow into the parking lane. Why don't we not lift the parking ban until we've cleared the snow to where people can park without impeding the traffic lane or just maintain the parking ban so that we can get buses through? Well, from what I've seen, the city has been putting up at least like on my street, for example, I live on Center Street in Jamaica Plain. Um, the they have put up emergency signage when they're going to go through and get a bunch of front loaders and just clear out the clear out the street. But it's only emergency parking to say that hey, we're going to clear out these parking lanes so that you can park there. Uh, when yeah, I know I agree. It should uh, the city should also be very clear. So the city this past week um, was nice enough to release snowstats.boston.gov. Um, which is a uh, current snow response website that they've shown uh, that they've set up. But what I'd like also like to sh- what, uh, what I'd also like them to show is the next step, and I believe this might have been designed by um, who is it? The uh, probably the Department of Public Works in coordination with the 
Department for New Urban Mechanics. Mm, yes, um, favorite. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> they, uh, I would love for them to also show the routes that they have to prioritize. So that way, it's not this. It's not, it, so that way. I don't know if you if any of you have been following um, uh, Mayor Walsh's tweets this week, but I have him on my tw- on Twitter Twitter notifications, and basically. Um, every other day he's been posting tweets about, oh, look, these are pictures of these streets being cleared and that street being cleared. Um, I'm hoping that the next step after this, and not just because we've had record snowfall in the past two weeks, but as a, as a government transparency thing, Mm -hmm. being able to overlay that kind of like how the, uh, the BRA now has, uh, a GIS map, basically Google maps with overlaid with all the projects that they have in the pipeline, um, also showing kind of like traffic traffic conditions, mm-hmm. um, where they've plowed, where the lanes are good, or what their priorities are. They need to be transparent about what their priorities are so that people, so that they don't have to be doing these, you know, uh, PR stunts of, oh, look, we're, we're, we're plowing this, this side street for equity reasons as opposed to, you know, uh, yeah, we're, we're plowing this main boulevard for equity reasons, so that way people who are reliant on the buses can get to where they need to go. Well, I think, you know, it's, it can be pretty simple. I was listening to Ask the Mayor on Boston Public Radio about yeah. two weeks ago, so the storm before this storm, and somebody called in and was saying, hey, why don't you just institute, you know, a, a weekly street cleaning, and that would be the same day that you would also, you could bring in the front end loaders and clear out all the snow. And the mayor was like, oh, that's a good idea. Well, we, didn't. <laughs> we thought, didn't consider that. I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, when I was working in L.A., every single side street, I mean, I wasn't in, like, talking about suburban, like, neighborhoods or anything like that. But every single side street that was residential, one side of the street. Alternate side of the street. Al- alternating sides of the streets were, you know, there'd be a day each week, and you'd have to move your vehicle Just once like a week City. if you parked on the street because the street cleaner came through. And if we could institute that here, that would be the same day they would do the snow removal. And I, that doesn't... It kind of strikes me that they haven't thought of that before. Well, there is there are alternate seat, uh, alternate sides side of the street parking rules um, in lots in many parts of Boston. But um, if you read the signs, they get suspended after a certain period of the year, and then they start back up again after. So they they suspend that during the they, winter during the winter right. exactly. They should yes. just keep it going all year then, shouldn't yeah. they? Well, I, I see. I don't. I have a really hard time with the idea of just like you know loading snow into into dump trucks and trucking it out of places. Well, if it's impeding with transit, that's that's the issue, though. We used to do that with yeah. carts. <laughs> I'm more I'm more I'm more likely to just you know blame cars, but I guess like, I understand where you're coming from. Like one of the, you know one or the other, we got to do something here, and we got to. They either can't know, park there, or yeah, we have to remove one the or snow. the other. I guess. Is, is well, the, they have those melters. Yeah. I guess they can. Yes. Yeah, so the snow is going yeah. to snow farms, and at several uh, several of the snow farms, they have to have a smelt uh, a snow melter, so that way. Um, the the snow has some place to go because at some point mm-hmm. the snow farm fills up kind of like a garbage dump and they have to well like you can't just like close a uh, you can't snow, close a snow farm because then where else do you put it you can't just throw it in the harbor which is what, uh, what they used to do yeah which <laughs> they and, used to do yeah and, and I agree with you Jeremy that I think the, the ideal situation would be that our transit system is strong enough that everybody can just leave their cars and we don't have to plow anything we can just all just walk to the nearest you know t-stop and mm-hmm. only so, worry about you know keeping those routes open but yeah. unfortunately it we're at actually, the opposite spectrum end of the spectrum from that right now yeah it reminds me actually one, one thing i wanted to was going to mention this with the if you look and you see 
if you look at these streets, I know my my little side street, that other one in, in Jamaica Plain, and um, you know many of these streets are in. If you look at even some of these major streets, you see cars that have just not been dug out. Yeah. And you say, well, okay, like this gets back to the conversation of, you know, free, cheap parking. It's like, okay, well, these cars can just park here and not be used. If these cars aren't being used and aren't that important to somebody, what the hell are they doing over here? Like, you know, blocking up Dudley Street or Center Street or Boylston Street. Do they? Maybe they have a Zipcar membership and they're uh, they're t- they're yeah, going no, around it's, as it's, needed. It's a really good point. They're yeah. just taking out public space that that we all own, and they're just allowed. And it it it, it always is painfully obvious whenever we have this because, like you said, you see a car that hasn't been dug out, you know nobody's driving it. This definitely plays into the discussion that's been happening um, in the opinion columns and and the mm-hmm. and the letters being written into the Globe and mm-hmm. and all these online comments about. Um, Boston parking issues where they are giving out unlimited numbers of street parking permits. Mm-hmm. They're not charging for them. Um, so people feel they, they right. it's like a, I might as well have it because, you know, it's there. It's like how it's this, it's a, it's a larger American consent, not to get too, like, <laughs> well, we're, it's we're enabled a, by American We're all Americans in Brookline. We're yeah. still in Brookline. And right. you moved into Brookline and that was just part of the deal is right. you don't get street, you don't parking. Get street parking. You just don't get it. And right. Brookline is busting at the seams. Like they don't, you know, they don't have to worry about people wanting to live there, even despite that. And so people either don't have cars or they pay for off-street parking and yep. they just suck it up. Yep. And uh, you know, whereas on the other hand, if you even talk about charging somebody for their annual parking permit in Boston, they I, have to isn't like that this, part uh, of my taxes? <laughs> I pay, I pay income or not income taxes. I, I also pay income taxes. I, I pay property taxes and blah 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 blah. So I'm entitled to the space that's in front of my house. So you know, like uh, the, those sorts of things. I mean, it's, by the way, that's a great impression. <laughs> that's uh, that's my uh, that's my guy. Boston my uh, my urban urban curmudgeon. That was that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, with, with that said, I mean, I think I think uh, maybe we've said enough on parking, yeah. um, but with with regard to to the transit system, and it, you know, I think this is like you were you were mentioning before, Marco. You know, if if our transit system had been you know allowed to function well, and you know, this could be such a great example of a situation where this is what this is what happens when you pay off. Oh, this is the payoff when you fund the T properly. It could right. have been that, right? And now you know we're sort of stuck in this and. Um, but I just wanted to mention a couple of, uh, well, I don't know. Okay, I'll rant about the Super Bowl parade. Um, <laughs> I'll take a minute to rant about the Super Bowl parade. That we we couldn't get our buses moving, but we could have a stupid Super Bowl parade. With the things we, you know, how many duck boats duck boat parades have we had in the past ten years? Like we really needed that. I think seven. Hey, but it's great for city morale and. I don't know. Hey, it was it was a high risk, high reward decision for the the, the yeah. mayor to make. Yeah. And that's another example of, that's not the mayor's problem, those are the MBTA buses. It's a state agency. So he's here to raise the morale of his city, and but those he scores are... a lot of points if it mm-hmm. comes off well. Mm-hmm. But those are but those are state state agency buses that are uh, also being paid for by Boston City contributions back to the state for the operating expenses and serving city Boston City uh, citizens. So, I mean, it's... It, the same day, like ninety percent of elementary school students were more than an hour late to school. So mm-hmm. that was people were pretty upset about that one, also. Yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah. I just want to throw that out. Yeah, there. and some of the students, <laughs> some, of, some of the schools also, the students commute also by 
by MBTA buses yeah. as well. So, like we said, I think that that one probably comes down on whether or not you're a Patriots fan. You might have liked that decision or not liked it. Right, I think that's what it comes down to. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk about, so we had all these issues. Um, I think the, the, best, the best outcome from this week was that there was um, an amazing amount of press about the maintenance issues, mm-hmm. the long-term um, deferred maintenance for the for the T. More than more than years past, where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, commuter rail, right. blah blah blah. More than I think any of us have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that it lasts longer than a week or two. The other thing is there were some some columnists that uh, came out and just blamed it squarely on the legislature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to pass it off on a very amorphous populace that didn't approve a gas tax hike and things like that. Um, and and then one of the columnists even that I was reading even said, you know, this is really due to the fact that not only have we not have we deferred our maintenance, but we've expanded our system. And that was a little bit of a surprise for me to read because I think with all the things that we're aware of in needs for expansion in T service, it doesn't really occur to me that we're one of the fastest expanding systems in the country. It doesn't feel like it. Right, it doesn't feel like it. But the problem is not only are we deferring maintenance, but we're also expanding, and that's exacerbating the issue of being able to fund what will keep our system running in a snowstorm. Well, again, it goes it goes back to, and we've talked about this before, about earmarking or, or specifically legis- legislatively pr- uh, promised projects like, say, South Coast Rail. Uh, I mean, it goes. You experience that in all in all levels where you have you have capital budget acquisitions like um when i was working in weston sometimes people would throw in donations for forty thousand dollars but they'd say oh well i want that specifically go to an ipad cart when you know we had computers or computers in a computer lab that needed to be replaced because they were you know years old or whatever so it's 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 that sort of thing is where um, whoever's holding the, the 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 purse strings gets to say where that money goes and that kind of loops into what I'd like to talk a little bit more about. And pushing the T is um, the T becoming not fully um, not not fully independent of of the state, but instead more so getting to the point where they've they've stopped they've stopped relying or coming back to the people who keep turning their backs on them. So um, where you're saying they have to come to the legislature on their knees every single year. Exactly. We need $3 million to build, uh, what did they say? They need $3 million million to build stands to put the Green Line cars on so they could overhaul them. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the legislature deferred it for like 14 years or something like that. Um, That's just one example. But they they have to piecemeal. They have to justify every single line item that they want funded every year. And so, uh, again, that goes back to the the kind of debtpocalypse thing that's going on with the MBTA. The MBTA does have a lot of that debt that, from that expansion that is actually being paid for basically in a line item that equals the amount of fares coming in. So I think it was um, um, every four out of every five dollars was going to debt service. Basically, yeah. So four hundred no, million dollars. One, one out of every five, no. No, it was it, really what I what I, I heard an interview this week where they said four out of every five dollars oh. going into the fare box. Yep, is going oh, to debt right. service. Yes, okay, yeah. going into the fare box. Okay, yes. so the right. fare box would be thirty percent of revenue, and therefore okay. right. Yes, right. because there's four hundred million dollars, yes. about four hundred million dollars that comes in in fares every single year, and four hundred million dollars that goes to the debt. So for those of you who aren't keeping track at home, um, I've had to explain this to New York City folks who seem to think uh, the MTA still has two books. In this, in <laughs> essence, the MBTA has. 
uh, or basically any business for that matter, has two budgets. A capital budget, which pays for shiny new buses, shiny new trains, all of that sort of stuff. Things that are physical to the system, as opposed to the operations budget, which is uh, the... Uh, you know, the drivers. The drivers, the yeah. pensions, which fuel, is fuel, you yeah. know, all that sort of yeah. stuff. So um, that, that operating budget is what we keep tr- needing to rebalance every single year, because... Um, either because of increases in the cost of operations, because we need to increase the the contributions to the debt. Uh, so basically, having to borrow money for operations, exactly, which is, should never happen. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and and when you borrow money for operations, most people inherently think, oh, that's a management problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When here, it's actually been a debt problem. It's a, yes, because I mean, we can't we can't absolve people. We can't say that our management is perfect, but. Mostly it's been a debt. It also doesn't help that the T has been repeatedly said to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to deliver a level of service that the state and the cities demand without really, you know, uh, the, the number of people in the T keeps reducing. And but a lot of people don't seem to understand. What, what that, do you mean the number of the people? In the I'm sorry. The the, the the employee count. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The employee count keeps reducing, being reduced, but. What people don't understand on the outside, or they can't even conceive of, is how that affects the internal efficiency. Like, we, we were talking about that before, how, you know, you have one person who's the chief, the information officer, and that person's being overpromised to all these different places or all these different duties, and at some point it breaks, and on the outside it looks like mismanagement, but what it really is, is... There's not enough physical people. Physical. It's, there's not enough warm bodies in the office to do the number of tasks that right, need to right. do. Ex, you know that right. need to be done. So and, um, and, and and the other the other flip side of it is that they've had to um, raise raise new revenues every time this happens. Also, yeah. and one of the issues we're running into on the revenue side is that okay, people who are riding the central subway mostly. Um, they will continue riding. Right. You know, we yeah. haven't we haven't gotten to the point where ridership goes down, but on the commuter rail we have, because the service being delivered is not commensurate with the increased price. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was it's the amateur planner uh, was put, posted a graph earlier showing that um, commuter rail ridership peaked in two thousand three, and showing how in the last decade the pr- it's gone up more than it had in the previous three decades. Yep. You know, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's I mean it's. Uh... It's a, it's a, I mean, it goes back to... And there's a lot we can say about how commuter rail should be run right. from an operational and a transit perspective, but... But it also know. goes back to, like, how do these, how do these investments return uh, these capital expenses, which add operating costs, um, how, well, a lot of them, because they're expansions, specifically expansions, how do these expansions, which increase operating costs as opposed to capital expenses that reduce operating costs, like improve efficiencies um how how do they return more revenue to the system and a lot of times they don't they don't pass muster if you were to do a quote-unquote performance-based review of the roi of these projects they do increase capacity though so they increase capacity in in our system they'll increase the number of cars we can run specifically in the central subway for the green line Right. right so yeah so if we were to do a signal project for example which is about the same cost as south coast rail 700 million dollars um, that would not necessarily increase the ridership, but it would make the system operationally more 
sound. So then this kind of comes, I, I kind of want to bridge this into the conversation of how do we go forward? So how do we go forward? Well, Jay Wilder has, uh, Jay Wilder, former CEO of the MTA, former CEO of the Hong Kong uh, MTR, uh, which is actually, I think, the most profitable transit agency in the world. Um, and let's talk about that a little bit more. They, they so for, for those of you who did vote for, uh, for Governor Baker, uh, and uh, <laughs> for those of you who who are <laughs> for those of you who are against the whole concept of or or like to throw around the phrase uh, tax and spend demo, you know tax and spend government, um, one of the ways that Hong Kong MTR has been so successful is because the government does pay for their capital improvements, but the Hong Kong MTR is also very very independent in its operating expenses because it does so much intense uh, development on its own property that, so for example, uh, many of the stations are under towers that are owned by Hong Kong MTR and whose rents go back to the operations. It's a, it's a model that has worked in Japan, everywhere else, where you, you are leveraging transit-oriented development in a literal sort of way. Like, before the word, before the phrase even existed... Um, Japan has been doing this, um, where they they do the development along their lines, which actually drives the ridership and pays for the line. and pays for the so. line's operation. So, um, but this you know the capital funding still comes out of say uh, the central government or something. So that's well, the the ridership pays the operation. The the government the the, the, the ground lease. Yes, pays the capital cost of building the line. Uh, not the, the capital cost; it pays for the operate the ongoing operations cost of that service. Um, so that's something that Jay Wilder has lectured about at Harvard, where he's he came back to the Harvard Business School about I want to say 2012, 2013, and he lectured and he basically said, "Listen, these these U.S. agencies need to stop going back to these governments that turn their back on the agencies." Um, and then, you know, just don't provide the funding that these agencies need in terms of capital costs or whatever. Right, so what you're saying is if we could get, if the T could, because um, we've tried that forward funding thing, and that, you know, then we got a... The sales tax. The revenue, the source that is declining. What you're talking yeah. about, what you're talking about is the public-private partnership. Right. Well, I, well, I guess. I don't know if that's... It is, because because what you're doing is you're saying we the state owns the property, and we're going to put out um, an RFP for private developers to come... And bid, yes. and they're going to pay us up front yes. for the for the use of the property over a long term ground yes. lease, and then they're going to build build it out, yes. and they're going to make a profit on that, and then the increased tax revenues. So we have the the leasing revenues, which is going to be happening every year. We or or they do lump sums also if they need the money bad enough, either lump sums or leasing plus. The build out of a larger property that has a, a higher and better use than what was there before yes. pays better, pays higher property taxes, which also yes. puts more money in the system. Exactly. So that's that's the, the public private partnership. Wouldn't this isn't this the same thing as a typical landlord tenant relationship? I mean, you rent you have a well, property. It's, it's, it's you rent one. It out. It's, it, it, yeah, it is. It is. So what, what it is is the state is the landlord to the developer, who is the landlord to his own tenants. There's, yes. there's now there's three okay. layers of landlord tenancy there. Yes, but. Uh, well, that's a good way forward. Maybe we can uh, keep this going. We have some properties that we can... Exactly. Use. So the T the, the is is the largest, I believe, state uh, own, landowner by, by square footage or something like that in, in the entire Commonwealth. Um, but mm-hmm. but more, more principally, the issue seems to be that the T 
is internally very focused on our job is to move people, and and that's what we're going to focus on. So, um, well, I mean, one of the issues has been that the T, the state, uh, which includes you know the T, has really been more interested in doing um, single transaction sales. Yes. And uh, Massport uh, has done a really good job in the seaport of doing these ground leases to developers. Leases, um, as opposed to exactly, one-time sales. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, there's been some criticism in the room for a uh, Republican governor and business-mindedness. But this, you know, basically tracks with something that um, Republicans have been more interested in, in the past. Um, and it has been sort of an anathema for the other side of the political spectrum because it is allowing for private profits. Right, and that's what you have to be comfortable with in the situation. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's you're allowing private profit on public land. Yes, mm-hmm. and so that I mean, and then and then as I was saying before, it becomes also an issue where MBTA management, I mean, asking them to do development on top of the what little they have, they basically would need to. Um, well, they already do have some. Uh, they do already do pay an external. Um, property management company to manage the, the land it, transactions and deals and all that sort of stuff. So um, it would mean either paying more to them or bringing some of that functionality in-house. But at some point it's somewhere... It's probably not a good idea to have well, people who are focused on day-to-day operations of a transit agency to now be also in charge of long-term planning. Right, but that would be creating a a separate department. So I was going to get to that point where basically, one way or the other, we have to put money into this. We we have to pump money into the system, but we have to do it in a way uh, that is better for transparency. And one of the first things that needs that the, the money needs to be pumped into is the communications department so that people can internally see so that there's a strategy and there's transparency so that people can see where this money is going because that, that's the big thing right now is that there's no there's no public confidence in where this money is going there's no public confidence that the T is having issues we're having to fight these ground battles where where people we're having to convince people yeah, the T is overstretched, and the people who are in the back offices are stretched beyond belief. And but they just don't have time to you to tell you. They, they don't have time to tell you that. Well, I think I think Mark. I think the good news is that we're moving in that direction. Massport's already moving there. Massport is under MassDOT, which yeah. um, is also you know MassDOT's also over the MBTA. So, so maybe Massport. This can... philosophy exists exactly. within that agency. Um, something else that's been brought on the table this week or repeated um, by Jim Aloisi and some other columnists is. A VMT congestion pricing. Um, yes, you know, I even, you know, I even saw a letter to the Globe, which was you know a pretty negative letter. It, it was it started out saying that the writers of the T should have to pay for all these issues. Um, but one thing he mentioned that I thought was interesting was he said there should be an availability tax. So basically, he was saying we should create a district that is within the uh, writer. What, what do we call it? Um, um, the service like shed. Of, of the tea. Like mm-hmm. any, anybody who's within the distance to use the tea should have uh, a special tax allocated to them. And, uh, you know, that comes off pretty negative, but it's not really that different than um, what we're saying about congestion pricing right. or VMT and things mm-hmm. like that. So uh, it, there's a lot of ideas being put forth that are gaining traction, that are, you know, yep. other ways of funding that hopefully will come out of this. Dedicated funding sources. And that's, that's something that the MTA 
for better or for worse, has a lot of these single line items, uh, single taxes that are applied to the boroughs of New York that um, that help them pay for specifically capital budget. So if you look at the fund, the funding sources for the MTA um, on their capital budget, they do get a lot of money um, from specialized local taxes, which you know some people bellyache about and whatever, but. Um, Amazingly enough, it pays for a large amount of their their needs. Um, I mean, that's how they were able to procure one billion dollars worth of worth of trains to replace thousands of yeah. trains in their system. Well, I think it's fair. I think I think you know one of the other things that's come out of this discussion is the gas tax is really not where it's at. No, and the gas tax. The problem with the gas tax at the state level, especially, is it all goes into one general pot. And then there's turf battles of Who? oh if we're gonna if we're gonna put some of this gas tax money into the T well nobody west of uh, Worcester feels like they benefit from that right you know and and not as much goes into the RTAs and plus general like regular people don't don't feel like they're gonna ever use an RTA even if they have one in their area so that there's, creates lots of issues where if we get to more of a dedicated tax and I, I've seen this right. even in reading proposals. For uh, new transit corridors in other cities, I've seen that the proposal will say, we also recommend that you create a, um, they might call it a transit improvement district right. or a transit improvement corridor. Yep. And so you're going to include in that... Value capture. Exactly. You're going you're gonna to capture the value, portions of property tax, maybe sales tax, whatever, in this whole corridor um, that's going to benefit from, from yep. the new transit. And I think that that would be a very fair way to deal with that right. here. I think uh, the the other problem, yeah, there is a <laughs> the problem with with getting people to realize that the the way is not forwarding. I mean, the the way for funding the MBTA is not through the gas tax, and that we need to stop looking at that as a solution. Um, is we need to also be able to calculate that political cost. There is a political cost in the amount of time that we waste in trying to argue <laughs> with the east and west east west Massachusetts politics. In, in trying to get the MBTA. Well, we spent we spent decades arguing about whether transit should get a portion of the gas tax mm-hmm. at all, and now that the gas tax can't even fund the roads, I, I think that we it's time to move beyond it. Yeah, the gas absolutely. tax is pretty much dead on arrival, even for the highway system these days. It's also time to start. Um, whenever we have a budget crisis and we have to you know look at raising transit fares, it's time to start closing streets as well. Um, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, but. Um, we can't get, you know, we what, can't what get you're saying to this, what yeah. you're saying is basically the system's overbuilt and we can't service everything we've built from a highway perspective. Um, that's one way to look at it. And another way, another way is that, you know, if, if we don't have money and the gas tax is not funding, you know, the gas tax doesn't even fund half of the cost of the, of the roads. Right. And so if, which is a, you know, the opposite of a, a popular myth that, that it does. Um, so it's the, the idea is sort of like that we never have any money for transit. Right. Well, we don't really don't have money for roads either, but somehow right. we're finding it, and we need to stop finding it, and you know, stop like robbing other places. Yeah. And we need to just say, look, look, yeah, we don't. If we don't have the money, we don't have the money. Um, but the other thing with the funding is that we're not going to get anything out of the state. It's just, I think it's just a. Josh, you made this point several times, and you've convinced me it's not worth trying to go after the state to like get new taxes because it's just we have to deal with the same stupid political battles with the people from Western Mass who think that like. You know, I don't understand how the tea could possibly help me. That it, you know, the fact that it fuels Boston's economy uh, doesn't help me out at, at all at Western Mass. Um, but we need we need to get this conversation local. You know, we need to just start, you know look to Boston and Cambridge and mm-hmm. Chelsea and you know and 
Newton. And all these places that benefit from the tea. You know, Very directly. directly. Where people really understand that, okay, if the tea wasn't here, like, my life wouldn't be what it is. Well, if and, the tea... And, the, it, this is a great example. The tea isn't here, so this is right. the shitty situation. Well, and if, if the tea gets better, my life gets better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my commute gets better, I spend more time with my kids, those kinds of things. I think this is actually, ironically enough, this, this two-week period has been actually really great for just exposing... Well, okay, so this is what happens when the tea breaks down, and you know this is this is this is our this is well, what because we, we reap what we sow. Because politicians, they get a lot more credit for saying I'm gonna ex- I'm gonna extend a line to your community. Mm-hmm. You don't get really get much credit for saying what I'm gonna do for your community is I'm gonna invest in the power supply for. I'm gonna make your I'm gonna make your trains more reliable, or you, I'm gonna improve service by. You can't five, put your name on that. Minutes. You yeah. can't. People yeah. aren't getting something they didn't have before. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that there's some there's definitely truth to that, but I also think that you know if we presented this stuff better, depends you know, on how you spin it. Yeah. Went out, you know, the, the the green line had you know X number of you know 56 service disruptions this this month in in the peak hour or whatever the hell it is. You know, putting that out there and like, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get the transit agency in such and such place. The problem is, it's not severe enough. Like we, I think, I I wonder, and I hope that this last week is severe enough that people will remember it when we're wrangling over the budget. You know, in June and July, when I'm gonna be optimistic and I'm gonna say, I hope it is, but I don't think it will. You know, because (laughs) it's sort of like it's sort of like the bridge to Long Island. Um, you know, for those that are familiar here, there's a bridge, and we knew that it was structurally deficient for like 30 years. And nobody did anything about it until the bridge almost fell. And now, actually, parts of the bridge are falling down. And so now, you know, people are impatient to get a new bridge up there. And it's what can we do to get it, you know, built tomorrow? It's it's like you have to have that sort of a thing happen with your transit system yeah. also. Like the equivalent of a bridge falling down. Can we sort of make that happen without, well, I, uh, without be having anybody Well, I hope system? that's what happened this week. I hope that that's what no, it was. Yeah. I, right. hope that that was I, mean, I hope so. Now that we're talking about revenue, though, we do need to talk about, um, you know, before we you know, end the podcast today, uh, so there's a 700, uh, cl- close to $800 million deficit, mid-year deficit um, in, the, in the state's current fiscal year that Governor Baker came into office um, with, which is, you know, exactly not what a governor wants to come into office with. So he's been spending his first few weeks in office figuring out how he's going to cut the budget everywhere. Um, not making friends anywhere, and he announced this week that there would be $40 million in transportation cuts, and I'll, I'll let you guys slice and dice that up a little bit more on what that means for the team. So we have here, it's $26 million from MassDOT as a whole, which I think is more the highway side, uh, $14 million from the MBTA. Um, this still requires legislative approval. Now, this is apparently, you know, Stephanie Pollack was was this new state transportation secretary was apparently, you know, put out there to, to go and say that this is going to be, you know, this will be fine. You know, it was, it was careful, strategic. You know, we just went, we looked at, there's a quote in there. Says, we, you know, we looked around and we found some, some jobs that were, that were open, you know, they were vacant and we needed to hire people, but you know, we're just not going to hire people anymore. And, you know, stuff like that. And, and then she goes, you know, I, I'm highly confident that these will not affect MBTA service or maintenance. How are these not going to affect MBTA services? Like when you don't hire people, you're going to have an impact on the yeah. service, so maybe you're not you're not cutting the the 6:45 bus trip on Route 34 or something. Well, she's very but, specific in her in the later in the second piece of that quote, and on the mass dot side, they are also designed not designed to not affect direct customer facing service. So, well, I, 
But it affects yeah. the right customer-facing yeah. service when you don't have the staff. You know, like, I think yeah. I said this before. I was... When I first started at the T, there were 6,500 employees, and now it's you know it's less than it's, it's a lot. They've lost at least 10 percent over yeah. the past 10 years. Well, just think about all the overtime that had to be worked this week to fix all of the train cars whose propulsion systems went down, whose motors right. went down. That that's not customer facing, but if there's fewer people to pull those overtime hours when you have something like this happening, right. then it's mm-hmm. more days that it takes to get service yeah. back to normal. Dr. Scott has also mentioned uh, in the past kind of tangentially to this in terms of employee employee headcount and, and operations costs. Uh, she says that, uh, I believe, what is it, uh, 30% of people within the next two years will be eligible for retirement at the T, and then uh, like five, within five years it'll be more like 60%. So there's, there's a lot of attrition to be had at the T, but not in the ways that would necessarily be beneficial to us. And that could be cost savings. Well, but we'll still be paying for their pensions. We'll still be so. paying for their pensions. <laughs> yeah. And thankfully, thankfully, I think uh, that will be the last wave of people who were, who were in that pool of, what is it, 35 and out yeah. deal? Uh, there was 25 and out. Oh, 25 There's and out. There were 25 and outs in there. There might have been 20 and out. I don't know if there was There's, the, the, the issue with that, if you talk to anybody who's been around the MBTA for a long time, they will tell you, they, nobody says this publicly, but they will tell you privately that the nobody used to retire after 23 25 years yeah. you would do there right. that was your thing if you worked there for 23 years like that was your life that's what you knew you know you did that every morning and you you know you were getting paid well and you you did your thing and you know now the political situation is so bad and the morale is just so low that everybody's just like you know after after 3 years people are like oh i can't wait to retire and it's like how long how long do you have left and they're like they're like 20 years and you're like you know and it's like people people want to get out as soon as they can get out because the situation is so bad and there's no, you know, there's no respect. Like, have the customers hate the MBTA employees for reasons that are not legitimate. I mean, right. it's just not a good place to a good well, environment. When when pensions when pensions were very common in the in this country, there also wasn't this idea that you retired and got another job. Those things didn't really. People right. basically, when they retired, they were spent. And the idea with the pensions was you weren't able to do more work because right. you had spent a long time doing backbreaking work, you know, right. on the railroad or wherever it was. And what what we're seeing now is that people are less spent and they're able to have another job, which probably the pension probably wouldn't pay to cover their entire life, so that's probably a good thing. But at the same time, politically, people will find these egregious examples where somebody has some six-figure job yes. and they're getting this pension. Let's put this into context a little more. The, uh, the pension fund, which I believe is $94 million out of this budget, that's $94 million out of one or two, no, two billion, out of a two yeah, billion. Yeah, it's 1.9 billion. 1.9 right. billion operating budget. Now, if you look at that, if you look at that difference, if you try to calculate a percentage, it's less than 1%. So not to, not to, demi- not to belittle that as like a, right. as a cost, right. but the saying that, highlighting that as a, as a politically sal- uh, salient thing to, to, to rail on the T about uh, is, you know, you're going for, you're, you're really going for the, for the, not even low-hanging fruit, but for the rotting fruit. It's not even a, it's, if you're, if you're legitimately, if you're trying to be legitimate in, in bringing up issues at the T and you, and you point at pensions, you're, 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 you might as well consider yourself out of that conversation because yeah. that's, that's not, that is not one for, for one, that's not the, the number one growing um, source of, of increasing costs at the T and two, um, it is it is barely a function of of the operating costs that is hitting that is that is what your your fare is paying for. The thing you should be outraged about is 
all of the all of the things is fair evaders. That's fair. Well, <laughs> yeah, fair evaders. <laughs> which which speaking of things that are less than one yeah, percent, as a, as a calculation, <laughs> like we 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 probably lose less than ten million dollars. If in the in the worst scenario, less than ten million dollars, maybe even less than five million dollars, if anybody could ever actually do a calculation of how much we lose, yeah. it's probably less than five million or ten million. So that's... now these these fair these uh, not fair cuts these um, budget cuts uh, are really it's just to get us through until the next fiscal year, which is going to start July one. Yes. So um, these, this is just a. Just a stopgap, and then we'll wrangle over what the budget's going to be, you know, next year, and, and whether that will affect service, yeah. and whether there's fare increases. Uh, hopefully not, but we'll have to see how that develops, and we'll continue to cover that. Um, speaking of numbers that that are super low like that, um, <laughs> even though we're talking about the millions, um, it's it, they decided to. It was announced this week that the late night service would be continued through this fiscal year. Um, and we'll have to see what happens then. It seems to be ominous. The signs seem to be pointing to we don't have money for this. Um, so, you know, we're going to be pretty concerned about that. I thought the ironic thing was that the late night service, uh, at least um, for the pilot year, cost $13 million. Um, We just cut $14 million from the T budget, which didn't affect service. But I, just, I did think it was a little ironic that... Right. Basically, the number was exactly equal to the num- the money that we cannot find for the late night service well, for next year. I'm, I'm sure we would have. That's that's 14 million dollars that we would rather not lose from the T as opposed to 14 million dollars that we'd rather be additionally spending on the T. So, but the big thing, the other big thing about um, that that late night service, um, uh, and I almost completely lost that thought here. Um, late night service. Well, you talk about ridership numbers and ridership. how that because calc- um, every article you read is going to talk about the subsidy. How it's seven dollars or thirteen dollars per ride for late night service, as right. opposed to eighty cents or whatever it is um, for the average yes. daily ride during peak times. Those ridership numbers don't reflect the fact that when you have late night service, when the train is going past midnight, that's more people riding the train before midnight. Because when you go out for a night, whether it's you know just a, a night out with your wife or a night out with the guys or whatever it's going to be, part of that calculation is if this night goes great <laughs> or or bad <laughs> from whatever <laughs> perspective that is and I'm still out at 2 or 3 in the morning when the bars shut down, how do I get home? Mm-hmm. And so the mode of transportation you choose earlier in the evening is affected by what mode of transportation is available to you at 2 in the morning. Yes. Uh, right, so revenue, re- related to revenue, as it turns out, and nobody's surprised by this, I think, I should hope not, uh, nobody can, nobody stepped up to the plate for corporate sponsorships on that. $100,000, so. I think, was the number. Was the most? That was the total. Oh, the total, yes, yeah. Did they try? They did try. Uh, Rich Davey was extremely optimistic about corporate sponsorships. Um, they got corporate sponsorship from the Red Sox and the Globe. The Globe was actually in lieu of contribution um, to do advertisement for the late night service. I'm not sure if the Red Sox did the same thing. They were really hoping that a lot of maybe restaurant groups and things like that were going to be donating because their employees are benefiting Mm -hmm. um, and because Mm -hmm. they're thinking that they would get more, you know, patrons because this late night service existed. It just never showed up yeah yeah I, I i mean i have a really hard time I'm, I'm actually much more cynical now that you mentioned this 13 that the cost is 13 million dollars and they're cutting 14 million dollars from the budget i'm very uh i'm very cynical because i'm thinking that you know maybe they're gonna do a little higher and freeze whatever now and then like next year that's gonna come out of the budget that's where, it like, come, where they yeah. come up with that number but i don't know i mean maybe, maybe not but it's just it's just sad because i know that we're at a situation with the t that 
every like little amount of money that you want to spend on something, you have to figure out how you're going to pay for it. But it's compared to the operating budget of the T, it's such an, an tiny, tiny amount of money. You know that it's yeah. this is an out. We shouldn't be having this type of discussion at this level over this amount of money. Yeah, and it's just it's just kind of crazy that we're having such a huge discussion about whether or not we can afford right. Well, thirteen million dollars yeah. um, to have late night service to have basically a service that everyone agrees that we should have. Yeah. and we're only talking about weekends right now. We're not even yeah. talking about the whole week, and we're only talking about till three a.m. I'm th- not talking th- about twenty four hour service. I think the other problem that makes it difficult to, to discuss with the public is. Um, people don't have a real-world feel for what $1 million does. Um, what does $1 million equate to? What does it pay for? What is What does $13 million pay for? So that's that's the thing, is that people get outraged by these numbers that are outside of their, their normal checkbooks. And so... Um, and it's a and it's a it's a problem year over year over year over year. People will pinch... will, will be... Uh, what is it? What's the phrase? It was, uh, I believe, it was a the phrase the uh, a phrase used for um, what is it? The the Delacendro report. What is it? Uh, pound pound fuel. Penny wise pound fuel. Yes, oh, there yes. we go. Thank you. Yes. So um, that's uh, we're 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 well, it's a bargain. It's really yeah. if you in the grand scheme of things to get late night service is a total bargain. You think mm-hmm. it's only yeah. thirteen million dollars and our city gets late night service. I mean, if yeah. if that's what it costs on the on the weekends, like what would it cost, you know, to have it every day? Right. You know, I mean, it would be a bargain. It's still a bargain, right. you know, for yeah. something that our city like. It seems like the majority of people agree that we want. Yeah. But we just maybe don't want to pay for. It. We should do a we should do a follow up episode to this at yeah. some point because unless you want to talk about this for a while now, um, but the thing with late night service is that. It, there's there's a couple of, of things going on here. One is that there are a lot of arguments for late night service. I mean, it's as, as Josh you just said, which is which I think was really important and always missed. That it's you know just having that service there allows you to move around, you know, do what you need to do and live your life, and and you know that it's there if you need it, even though you may never use it. And you should still. It's kind of yes. like having a you know a bus route, a 59 bus route to go down to Needham. It's like I don't go to Needham, but. If I ever need to go to Needham, well, then it's nice that there is a, and I've been there a few times, and you know, but there's, there's, so there's, there's that. Um, we we often get lost in this discussion about, uh, you know, transit for having transit so people can go to bars and then they can come home, you know, so they right. can go out for fun and you know they don't, and then they can come, they can not have to take a cab. In, in my mind, late night service would you really should be twenty four seven. It's not about that. It's about the people who have to work to support the economy. Who have to work because if you have to work at that hour, it means that you're probably you probably don't make enough money to the point where you can decide that hey I don't want to work that hour. You're taking the job mm-hmm. and the shifts you can get, and you know you should be entitled to a safe and efficient and, and affordable way home. That's one of the key benefits. Um, there's many other benefits as well, and so I, I guess I, I don't really have to go through all of them. But another thing that came to my mind is that we when when this pilot came out last year it was kind of it kind of just came out of nowhere there had been a few experiments with the night owl service in the past and there was rumbling about it in the press yes. yeah and and this kind of came out it was a very political thing like deval patrick and mayor menino like they really wanted sorry governor patrick um they really wanted to get this this thing out there they wanted to you know like they were concerned about their legacy it it didn't really seem like there was much of a plan for how this service was going to look and how it was going to continue because if you had such a plan what you would do is you wouldn't necessarily just run the, the key bus routes and the subway service. 
you would have a system of bus, a network of bus routes like Toronto or San Francisco Bay Area and, and other places that have a, a network of service that may be different than what we have during the day. You know, we don't have people commuting to work at 2 o'clock in the morning or at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, not in the same way that they're, you know, commuting to work at 8 o'clock in the morning or, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The service needs to look different. You need to get focus more on geographic coverage. You know, you might have to walk a little farther, but sort of have this system where pretty much everybody can get everywhere. Right, exactly. Like uh, like London's network of bus uh, night buses, which uh, appears to cover... And connect, actually, in a lot of different places. Even though London itself is, is almost, actually, I want to say worse, more circuitous uh, street network, street map. That's um, right. You, people always say, that. Oh, we don't have a grid, and there you go. London. And uh, London still manages to have um, a grid of, of night buses that connect all of the... All of the uh, the tube network, the tube stations, and but again, that's that's an example of a system that is whose capital funding is paid for in a in upfront by the central government and by the city of London, um, and then you know other revenues for operating uh, operating budget. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I mean that this has never really had any commitment from yep. city and state officials and. Yeah, and I hope we can sort of push to to change that. It was always it was always from the perspective of, hey, let's give this a try, and then just kind of nobody holds the nobody holds the politicians' feet to the fire on that because we really don't, as a society, we really don't complain about transit until it's broken. Uh, kind of like how I seem to be I, my 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 interests and my fun my job functions seem to be aligned up with things that people take for granted. So IT and transportation. Um, so I, 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 I know this very deeply, uh, that people just don't care to know or understand anything until it's broken. I want to bring up one more thing about late night service and just adding in something else, sort of from a political perspective that a lot of people aren't aware of. And that's that, um, the, the, the number of liquor licenses that we have in the city of Boston mm-hmm. is controlled by the state. Mm-hmm. And because of, there's a limited supply of liquor licenses, there's a market for like a secondary market. So you have to apply to the city or the state when they're available. But once you've run through your cap, um, which it was recently, they decided to extend it and they're going to be handing out, I think, 25 more for the next three years. So there were 75 more licenses available in the city of Austin. Once you run through that cap and you have to go, there's lots of legal costs. You, know, you, have, to, you have to hire a It's very complicated to get these licenses. Once you go through that cap, well, then if you want a license, you want to open a new restaurant or a bar or something like that, you have to buy it from somebody who has one. So there's a secondary market where people are paying upwards of like a million dollars to get these licenses. The neighborhoods that do not, or let's just say these licenses are extremely disproportionately um, located in the Back Bay, in Beacon Hill, in the North End, in the South End. Um, you're seeing like of all these new licenses, maybe like two are going into like Dorchester, which is an area that's like double the size of all those areas we just mentioned. So the reason I bring this up is where are a lot of people going late at night if they're you know whether they're working or they're going out for social reasons, they're going a lot of times to places where they're serving liquor. And those places are only in certain parts of the city. And those are the more affluent parts of the city. The people who are working at those establishments or the people who want to have a nice night out also, that means they're having to travel from their neighborhoods to the more affluent areas to have a nice night out. So the people who are affected by 
late-night tea service are the people who can't afford to live in walking distance to where all these nice restaurants and bars are. Or they pay a significant price and forego other things. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. right. That's so, an interesting point. But, I mean, with the, with, the, with the prices of rent and homeownership in this city, even people living in the poorer neighborhoods are still paying way more. I mean, it's something like 50% of Boston residents, or 50% of Massachusetts <laughs> residents, pay more than a third of their income on housing. Mm-hmm. So even if you're living in a quote-unquote poor neighborhood, you're still paying a lot for housing. Um, but if you can, to the, you know, the whole point is, if we don't have late-night tea service, we're hurting the people who need that transit most because to get to their jobs or even to get to entertainment, they have to leave their neighborhood and go somewhere else, which means they either have to now own a car and they have to deal with, with upkeep and parking for that car or they have to get a taxi or an Uber, or they have to impose on their family or friends to give them rides to their jobs to service the more affluent people. Mm-hmm. Or drive drunk. Or drive drunk, uh-huh. right. <laughs> yes. Um, Which definitely happens. To so, me. I don't know if that's a good way to end the show or not today, <laughs> no. but... Don't drive drunk. <laughs> don't drive um, drunk. Can I just uh, plug one more thing, I, just for the... Um, there was a there was an article, a couple of articles talking about there was a crowdfunding campaign. Yes, GoFundMe. Um, there, there's a guy who I don't know if you can pull it up. We can uh, we can plug his name. Um, this guy who's an MBTA writer who who started this uh, page on GoFundMe, which is like a Kickstarter. Um, he he was just like you know this is ridiculous. We can't fund the team. Thing can't run right. Jansen he McCormick. Said, yeah, thanks. And he said if we can't, he said if we can't you know get the the state and the public funding to fund this, then you know could we what, what if we could raise $30 billion? And, you know, what could we... And so, um, so yeah, um, by the way, if you don't uh, if you don't reach the goal, uh, I want some of that money. But I want to read some of these uh, donor rewards because I, I think they're uh, I think they're great. Um, so, some, some great stuff here. So, um, for, for $50, I will scream your name on an orange line car for 45 minutes during rush hour. Um, to, for $200, you are given carte blanche to forcibly remove backpacks from passengers and throw them into the pit between platforms <laughs> from the hours of 6 to 9 a.m. and 3 to 7 p.m. Uh, $500, is my favorite, gets you a monthly Link Pass Plus. It's the same as the unlimited bus and subway rides as a standard Link Pass, but you're allowed to make any train on the B-Line go express between Kenmore and <laughs> Packers Corner. Uh, $15,000, you can ride one of those old historical trolleys that are at Boylston Street. Um, you won't notice the difference in your commute. Um, for ten million dollars, you get to rename a station. So that's uh, you know. I like that's that. I, I think we've had that. I think the MBTA's had, had that, that deal for a while. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think they got, I don't think they got one hundred thirty uh. or ten million dollars here. Yeah, one hundred thirty million dollars. You get a state-funded Legoland uh, within an Orange Line station. That's pretty cool. Um, and for thirty million dollars, you get a transit system barely adequate for the needs of a twenty-first century global city. So kudos to uh, the person who put this up. And um, yeah, and. Uh, if you got extra money kicking around, I guess give it to them. And see what yeah, they can do. I, I really <laughs> like I really like some of the uh, the the comments uh, below, especially uh, especially Harmony Wu, um, who I'm not sure is I'm, I can't I'm not sure if that's the same person who follows us on Twitter as Harmony Wu, but um, uh, her her comment reads, "Isn't it great that we must resort to begging to fund our infrastructure?" which is what we do already. If you're fed up, please sign the petition to tell the legislature that they should do their jobs and raise the revenue. Yes, from taxpayers, because we don't get nice things free. Needed to upgrade the MBTA and invest in it for our future needs. So, um, uh, also, so uh, Transport for Massachusetts also has a... um, 
Uh, do they have a GoFundMe, or was that... Uh... It was a petition that was been circulated. Oh, a petition, I that's, that's the right. one. I think that's the petition that had been put up in some of the articles, and I think that... I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a pessimist at this point, but, I mean, we, I, with, with regards to the legislature, but, I mean, maybe it can't hurt. Yes. So, I mean, there's a lot of... It's it, it's already at 1,231 signatures, and they just need um, they just need 2,000 signatures to uh, to get to, to the full... Uh, uh, hey, quota question. for the petition. Random question: Can we, can we get like? I'm not too up on how the state legislature works and how it's formed and all that, but could we? What if? Would it help if we got like a this like Boston region coalition that like basically came together and like refused to do it? Like, did use some their power in some way to? Like, would that be enough? A coalition of what? In other words, like I know the majority of people in the state live within like reasonable access to the T. Um, so like. What is like, is that the same for the state legislature? Like, are there, are there a majority of the people in the state legislature? Like, is it by population? Well, so as it turns out, Thomas McGee, who I think we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, Thomas McGee, who's actually the state senate chair on the Joint Committee for Transportation, um, is actually the state senator from Lynn, I believe. So, uh, in the least, you've got some sway there. Uh, but the way that the the way that the Senate works is um, you have the, the the committee the Ways and Means Committee is who holds the purse strings quite literally on yeah. on the state budget. So uh, I mean, there's already a transportation committee. Um, so that's that's kind of I don't know if it's east and west uh, balanced. I see um, one senator from Lowell. Uh, one senator from Longmeadow, another senator from, uh, from Quincy. So actually, yeah, it seems like a few of them are, are already within the Dorchester, already within the um, West Roxbury. This is pretty East East Massachusetts and then Weymouth. So I, I wonder if that might be the reason... If anything, the T the T transportation sorry the Joint Committee on Transportation in this in the uh, legislature might be having issues with uh, getting the Ways and Means Committee to hear their their you know their needs. Well, in, in the legislature, there's three people who well, there's three people in Massachusetts government who matter. Yeah. it's the governor, the Speaker of the House, and the President of the Senate. Yes. because we have a sup- basically a supermajority single party government system here, and so. Um, the caucus of that party is more important than any vote that happens within the chamber. chamber, Right. So each caucus, so the Democrats and Republicans go and meet with their respective caucuses before any voting happens on any given day. And basically whatever the president of the Senate or the speaker of the house tells them that they're going to vote on that day is what they're going to do because the parties stick together. One of the issues that happened when Governor Patrick asked for $1.9 billion for transport, a transportation package, is the President of the Senate and the Speaker of the House were incensed that he put this out there without coming to them and yes. collaborating with them yes. about how to do it. That's so right. really, the reason that they only halfway funded what he wanted, and that's with an asterisk because the funding they provided for it didn't end up coming through, but... The reason they only halfway funded it was more because they were offended that he didn't treat them as the all-powerful people they are, rather than because they didn't support the goal. Yep, that's what ends up happening in our legislature. So our so our transportation funding 
no more <laughs> kind of sort of no no big no big news there but our 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 transportation funding is contingent on politics massachusetts legislative people, uh, politics saying that theirs is bigger than yours essentially uh, Something like that, or or res- <laughs> respect my authority, as some go. South okay. Park character likes to say. So, all right. On that note, um, you should all respect our authority. <laughs> we are the best, or something like that. We sh- I do want to put in a plug. We 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 started to do it's whether it's going to be weekly or biweekly a news update that or a news roundup. Um, we'll, you'll you'll be noticing a news roundup blog post will be appearing. At transitmatters.info, and and that will take up the place of a lot of what our showtime was spent on. But um, we'll also still be covering many of those many of those subjects. But that way, we don't have to spend you know three quarters of every single show just talking about recent uh, news and events in transit. Yeah. So pay attention to that, and and let us know if you if you like the show, if you like that piece, if there's other things you want to hear covered, or if you think we got it wrong. You can tweet at us. Uh, I I tweet at uh, at hatchback thirty uh, one. I tweet at, uh, you can follow me at Mark Ibunia on the main Transit Matters Twitter account. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm Jeremy. I, uh, I'm at Critical Transit, and I'm actually going to get that website, criticaltransit.com, uh, up and running soon. Cool. And, of course, yeah, go, uh, you can visit our website at transitmatters.info. Uh, give us feedback at feedback at transitmatters.info. We love to hear what you've got to say, uh, and feel free to include us on tweets. Or send us news by including us on those tweets. Um, we've got we we are listening. So thanks again for listening. Tune in to our, ne- to our next podcast for more transit news and digest because transit matters. <laughs>